I'm Chris Reback. This is a special live podcast of Working Capital Conversations. If you thought the battle between machines and jobs, the dislocation of labor and society resulting from digitization or automation has been one-sided so far, just wait. The next wave of attack is well underway, and it's called AI. Artificial intelligence, most simply, refers to computers that perform tasks that normally require human intelligence, things like visual perception, speech recognition, even decision-making. Earlier this year, the management consulting firm McKinsey famously wrote that 25% of the global workforce will either need to find new professional activities by 2020 or significantly broaden their technological skills. The World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs Report 2018 states, By 2022, the skills required to perform most jobs will have shifted significantly, and no less than 54% of all employees will require significant re- and upskilling. The greatest concerns are not just that AI destroys jobs, but that it increases inequality, that low-wage employees get displaced while high-wage employees maintain or even extend their value that's more difficult to replace with the machine. Of course, new technologies have disrupted existing processes for centuries. Steam engines, electricity, microprocessors. Will the AI experience be different than with previous technologies? Most importantly, what can governments, corporations, small businesses, and individual workers do to not just avoid massive disruption, but rather position themselves to take outsized advantage of the opportunities? To find out, I recently hosted an excellent roundtable discussion at Clayton Dublier and Rice with NYU professor Robert Siemens. Professor Siemens studies how technology and government structures affect strategic interactions between firms, affect incentives to innovate, and ultimately shape market outcomes. Previously, he served under President Obama as a senior economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He also co-authored an important review titled simply, AI and the Economy which explored the potential impact of AI on productivity and labor and considered the various roles for regulation around antitrust, wages, data portability, and even immigration. Before my conversation with Professor Siemens, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's the special live podcast with Rob Siemens. I think we should start with what I'm sure you will feel um, and agree is the pertinent question. If we thought that globalization um, and version 1.0 of the digital age were bad for jobs, machines uh, replacing humans. Just wait until the full impact of AI hits. We'll have machines that can think and continuously improve, machines that can perform cognitive tasks. That's when many jobs will really take a hit. Uh, you might have read just this week that uh, Microsoft invested a billion dollars in Elon Musk's open AI to pursue artificial intelligence that's smarter than we are. So I feel compelled to ask, as a fellow who makes his living off of his brain, are you in trouble? Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, no, I'm not in trouble, and, and none, of, none of us at the table right now are in trouble, uh, at least for a very, very long time. Um, I, I'm excited about the potential <clears throat> for AI to spur economic growth, uh, but I think that the effects on labor that get talked about in the popular press um, have been misleading. I mean, I... I 
there, there will be some substitution, but I think it's going to you know, far more be the case that there'll be a lot more complementarities between AI and jobs. I think that there'll, there'll be, as a result, a lot of employment growth. Uh, th those stories don't get told enough, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the net effect of AI on jobs. And we will talk about that. We'll talk about the net effect on jobs. We'll also talk about productivity and the differentiation between productivity and labor, but also some of the public policy aspects, because while you may be optimistic, it sounds like about the net effect of AI and labor, I did pick up on your phrase, net effect, yeah. because at the uh, uh, micro level... You're using your cognitive <laughs> skills there. I'm, try I'm, yeah. I'm trying, you know, I don't have a plan B. You know, if AI <laughs> replaces, I got nothing else, this is all I got, man. So I, I got it. Can we just start quickly with some history? New technologies have disrupted existing processes for centuries, steam engines, electricity, microprocessors. We are in the digital age and have been for some time now. We've seen disruptions, but we've also seen productivity gains, obviously. What makes artificial intelligence different from the run-of-the-mill digitization and from the impacts we've seen to date? So, so let's start first, first with a little bit of history. So, so going back, right, so, so you mentioned sort of electricity, you know, steam, electricity, uh, maybe the first wave of IT. Uh, all of these have led to productivity growth. Um, th the thing that doesn't, maybe doesn't get talked about a lot is that it takes a while for the productivity growth to take effect, right? So just to give you an example of this, uh, research that's been done on factories switching from steam to electricity in the U.S. in the early uh, 20th century, uh, it, it would take, you know, five to seven years or so before that factory would see any productivity gains. And the reason for that is that you can't just take steam out and plug electricity in. You actually have to rearrange the way you do the production process. Uh, that takes time. That takes uh, co-investment, you know, sort of investment in other assets. You don't know what those other assets are. You don't know what that sort of rearrangement uh, is going to be ahead of time. And so there's a lot of experimentation. There's sort of dead ends. Uh, and it takes time before you see this productivity growth. Um, so I, I mentioned that for a couple of reasons. Uh, first is to tie to sort of current productivity growth that we are not seeing. Right? So this, this is one thing that people bring up is you know, we've had AI now for you know, sort of the recent uh, increase in what AI can do for five, maybe ten years, depending on how you date it. And yet it doesn't seem like it's showing up in the productivity statistics uh, yet. Right? And, so, and I think the reason for that is that it actually you know, it does take time for, for firms to learn how to use this new technology, how to deploy it. That, that's sort of point one. Point two is that um, now, this is my hypothesis, but firms that engage their workers, their workforce, in terms of figuring out the best ways to use this new technology are the ones that are actually going to see the biggest uh, productivity boost from it. And so that's part of the reason why I think that the story is ultimately, and on net, a good story for employment, and particularly for firms that uh, really engage with their uh, workforce. Will the integration of AI, do you see that gap or, or the, the, the delta from the lack of productivity gains at the beginning to the speed of, let's call it perhaps exponential productivity gain, um, do you, or, and you, you can characterize what you think the productivity gain will be, do you, how, how quickly do you think we can see that, um, that gap uh, brought down? I, I would assume quicker than we saw from the shift uh, you know, off of steam into electricity, for example. Yeah, uh, yeah, one would hope so, I guess, uh, you know, given that example, given that that was sort of in the olden days, quote-unquote, um, whereas presumably now we're sort of more efficient so we can move more quickly and things like that. Um, <clears throat> I hate saying this as a professor, right? Mm. 
Uh, but as an academic, I'm fine saying this. I don't know, okay? <laughs> um, and moreover, anybody who says that they do know is lying to you. They don't know. They're just sort of making it up, okay? Um, so, 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 but let, let's start with like a few sort of conjectures here. So, so I think the big question, or I think there's sort of three big questions, right? And we've been sort of dancing around them a little bit. First is how much productivity growth will we get? Second is when? Uh, and then third is what, what's going to be the effect on labor? And we've started to talk about that a little yeah. bit. Uh, in terms of how much the productivity growth will be, um, I think one good benchmark, and I would view this as sort of like um, the floor as opposed to the ceiling, would be, um, so, so in other words, like a reasonable guess would be a 10% increase in economic growth uh, from AI. And, I, and I'm basing that off of research that's been done looking at the effect that robots have had on economic growth uh, over the prior uh, two decades. Uh, in terms of when, um, so I mentioned that I gave the five to seven year yeah. number um, uh, a moment ago. Uh, just extrapolating from that, you know, it's been you know five to ten years since we've had AI, uh, or at least rapid gains in the lab uh, in terms of what AI can do, and we're just starting to see commercialization of AI. And so I think we'll start to see this increase in productivity growth, um, modest increase in productivity growth uh, within the next three years. Let's say that would be my my guess. Now, of course, you might want to you know if if there's a recession at some point, that's going to push stuff off a little bit. Um, but that would be my guess about the sort of minimum amount that we would see and when we would expect to see it. Now, you, you said exponential growth. That'd be great if we could get exponential uh, economic growth out of AI. Um, I, I'm less convinced that we will. I think we will get growth, but I, I'm, I don't think it'll be as dramatic as some folks think. And <clears throat> part of that is we can think about, you know, we can, we can look around the room, and I, I think every single person here that I can see at least has their cell phone with them or maybe tucked away, as, as Richard has t- tucked away. Um, you know, th- there's AI in here. We're already using AI. I used AI to navigate my way t- from my home to this building. And when you think about, you know, so, so is that increasing? Is that somehow driving productivity growth? It's driving a little bit of productivity. It's making me a little bit more efficient. I didn't get lost on Broadway. Um, but in terms of leading to 10% economic growth, no, we, we actually need more. We, we need something more. And so people start to think about what the sort of killer apps, if you will, might be. Um, so, some of that might be energy efficiency. Some of that might be uh, autonomous vehicles or something like that. Um, maybe dramatic changes in terms of how we do logistics and transportation. You, know, you start to think about where you might get those sort of killer apps that, that would then drive a lot of economic growth. So let's turn to the other part of the equation, labor. Yeah. which uh, you, you said previously you're kind of bullish on the net effect, um, but uh, you know, at the micro level, um, I could imagine how things might be a little bit different. You outline in the paper um, three effects, three approaches, the um, theoretical perspective and empirical or historical perspective, um, as well as um, attempts to make granular predictions about nascent technologies and the effects that they might have on labor. So um, if you would uh, give us your overall thesis about uh, the impacts on labor overall. I, I think it's good to think about sort of three buckets, and there's going to be three different buckets that, than, than we talked about in the paper. Uh, what one bucket is, occup- and these are sort of buckets of occupations. What one bucket of occupations are those will there be some substitution and maybe those occupations will disappear. That's one bucket. Second bucket might be new occupations that are created. And then the third bucket is all the existing occupations and the changes that will happen in those buckets or in those occupations um, as AI becomes more and more a part of everybody's life. Um, I think those first two buckets 
are, th- th- those are the two buckets that people talk about, J- jobs that disappear and then new jobs, you know, new occupations that are created. I think those are the smallest buckets, right? I mean, th- there will be some jobs that disappear. There'll, there will be some jobs that we can't imagine right now that get created. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot actually happening, though, in those two buckets. I think it's going to be more that third bucket, all the existing jobs and how these jobs are, are changing. Um, in terms of the effect on an individual and how they're going to be affected, I think you know, the, the topic of what you guys are talking about today, uh, you know, r- you know, skills and retraining, to, to the extent that an individual can quickly access the uh, training that they're going to need to gain some new skills, that they're given the proper incentives to get those skills, uh, those individuals will, will be able to learn the skills uh, quickly that they might need to transition what they're doing in their occupation from perhaps the way it used to be done to the way that it's done in the future. And, and just to give you an example of this, uh, I'll take my own professor, profession, right? So, I, so as a research professor, I spend half my time teaching, but half my time uh, doing research. And you know, 30 years ago, a professor in my shoes would you know, write out everything by hand and hand it to a secretary who would type everything up. Um, it, it, it's now the case that you, actually, you, know, you have to have the, the skill of typing. As, as a professor. You have to have it. I mean, indeed, in every occupation, you have to have it, right? But it's a skill you need to have. It's, it's a skill that I learned over time, um, you know, back in college. And, and, you know, it, it, so, it's, you know, so, so occupations, we'll, we'll see a lot of changes within occupations. Um, it, it's going to be incumbent on people to sort of learn the, the skills that they're going to need to do well in those occupations. The incumbency to learn the skills and the ability to learn the skills and the opportunity yes. to learn those skills um, brings me to two, the next two areas that I want to talk to you about, um, inequality mm-hmm. and public policy regulation in there. Um, inequality, uh, it is my own personal belief that uh, inequality gaps are um, at the core of many of the challenges that not only our society, but many societies globally are facing today. There are all sorts of other impacts as well, but uh, the various forms of inequality and, and access to opportunity, et cetera. Um, you also describe in the paper um, how labor rates, say, between skilled versus unskilled jobs might be maintained. You just described it there, but at a high cost or increased inequality. Um, we describe that paradigm. How worried are you about AI driving an increase in inequality, and how, how much rent does that take up in, in your mind? Yeah. Um, so, so for starters, in the paper, we only sort of touched on this topic. Yes. That there's sort of space constraints and, and sort of other fo- focuses. That's that why really I wanted have. to talk to you more about it now. Okay. You're putting me on the spot. Yeah, so, so I do worry about the inequality piece. Let me, I, I'll say two things on that. Um, first, some of the research, some of the current research that, that I've been doing is looking at how uh, advances in AI have been affecting uh, labor, both employment and wages, over the prior five to ten years. And on net, I see sort of roughly no effect on employment, but I do see a positive effect on wages. However, the positive effect on wages is concentrated in those occupations that had high wages to begin with. Okay, so that, that's suggestive of the fact that AI might increase inequality. Um, at, at least across occupations. You might imagine it would happen within occupations as well. Um, so yes, I do worry about that. Um, from a policy point of view, one, one might imagine that one could create training programs that would try to uh, help people transition from one occupation to another, that might help people get the skills that they need uh, to do well in their current occupation. 
And one of the sort of promises of AI, if you will, that people talk about um, is that th there might be a way to sort of digitally deliver some of this skills training. Now, th this is actually an area that I, I think that's, that's true. That's probably right. Um, however, th this is an area where I, I feel like a certain type of inequality that I'll talk about in one sec uh, is, is very worrying. Okay? And that, that is the inequality in access to broadband. Okay? So, so if, we, if we think that AI might, that, that we might be able to, to sort of deliver training to people remotely or something like that so that they can uh, learn the new skills that they will need, then we need to make sure that people can actually access um, th this training. Um, in fact, however, that, that's not the case. So the, the, this statistic that I'm going to give you is from 2016. Uh, but as of 2016, half of the households in the bottom income quintile in the U.S. had no broadband at home. Right? So everybody here in this room, like, you know, this is not an issue that we deal with. We can really easily access whatever we want from the, from the Internet. We can uh, train ourselves easily via the, the Internet or, or via our, our phones. Chris actually... Uh, turned the tables on me this morning and asked me what I thought of a New York Times article that was published this morning that I had to admit I hadn't yet read. So while he was getting his coffee, I very quickly pulled it up, and I'm, I'm waiting for you to quiz me on that, but you haven't done that yet. <laughs> right? but so so uh, I can do that because I have access to the Internet. Um, I can retrain myself quickly. I can, I can you know, learn skills that are remotely delivered to me. Um, however, half of the households in, in the United States, sorry, half of the households in the bottom income quintile of the United States the, you know, precisely the households that we might worry about are going to be adversely affected by some of this, uh, don't even have access to the technology that we might think they would need access to uh, in order to undertake some of this uh, retraining. So lack of access to broadband is, is one area. Are you more worried about um, inequality gaps expanding because of the lack of ability to access reskilling and retraining, whether that's because I don't have broadband so I can't retrain myself, which, by the way, even if I did have broadband, seems like a pretty high bar if there isn't um, maybe a public policy program around it, there aren't um, enterprise or business, pro-business incentives mm -hmm. around retraining. We've just gone through um, the beginning stages of globalization where um, we've seen what's happened with uh, manufacturing jobs and the lack of investment in retraining and reskilling that um, occurred while there were uh, all sorts of economic challenges in the world. So are you more worried about that aspect, or are you more worried about the part of AI displacement where the rich get richer, meaning the higher skilled get more access and more higher skill? There becomes a wage gap, a greater wage gap um, on, on that level. I think both are worrying. I don't, I don't know that I sort of how I weight the two. Um, however, I, my focus on broadband is because the, the fix to this is a relatively cheap fix. R relatively mm -hmm. cheap, meaning, you know, several billion dollars, yeah. right? Uh, in, in terms of uh, trying to spur, let's say, rural broadband or something like and, that. And next but week it, is infrastructure week again, isn't it? Again? Or is it, or is it, or is it recess next yeah. week? I don't know. Oh, maybe it's a recess. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just to, just to sort of um, put, put a few numbers out there. So, um, Existing, you know, the, the earned income tax credit, okay, which is a fantastic program uh, that we have in the U.S. that helps uh, sort of incentivize people to learn the skills that they need to switch maybe from one job to another job. We spend 75, maybe 80 billion dollars on that a year. Um, Eight billion for broadband is a tenth of that, right? And so I, I think I, I don't want to shift money from one to the other, but but just in terms of uh, orders of magnitude, it strikes me that uh, increasing access to, to this new technology via investment in broadband or other types of connectivity 
uh, is a relatively cheap way to try to start to address some of this. Okay. And, and by the way, also a bipartisan way to try to address some of this. I mean, th th this is an area where the Obama administration was very focused and where also uh, the current administration has been focused. Uh, I'd like to ask the folks around the table, start thinking of uh, your question or questions because we'll um, have time for uh, one, or, one or two of those. Let's uh, shift then to uh, regulation, uh, public policy, and the pop quiz on today's New York Times yeah. story, um, which was all about the value of data yeah. um, and kind of got to data portability, which is one yeah. aspect. Um, and and th there was a figure uh, that was quoted, a, a report that, um, so every, we all know, every um, click, mouse stroke thing that we do on a computer or a phone, um, there's really valuable data behind that, and the trade is, generally, um, to, to overstate it, um, we get free stuff, and Google and Facebook and then others uh, get our data. And that data has a ton of value, and this one study um, uh, put that value at $76 billion. And so the questions around that are, what should we do about that? What should we do about that? Perhaps it, whether that's an inefficiency or, a, you know, is that a fair transfer? Um, are there private sector solutions that should think about redistributing that value? Are there public policy questions? So, um, the, the, you know, around data portability, um, around there are also immigration issues that uh, need to be looked at. So, um, one, um, does, you know, this is the easy one. Does AI require some level of regulation? Um, two, if so, uh, what level of regulation? And maybe even three, should there be an AI-specific agency? Chris, you, you, you threw a lot out there. I even toss in immigration, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so immigration is the easy one. Um, we, we need a different immigration policy than we currently have or, or than th this administration has been pursuing. Uh, anecdotally, I haven't yet seen sort of systematic research on this, but anecdotally, uh, a lot of really good AI researchers are leaving the U.S. for Canada or not coming to the U.S. in the first place. And so if we, if we as a country want to be a leader in AI, we, we need a different immigration policy than we currently have. Uh, that's perhaps a separate... It's a separate... And can yeah. I throw one more in there? Oh, is, sure. Uh, got... anti, yeah, why not? <laughs> antitrust. Antitrust, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for you to say yeah. that. Great, okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> on the antitrust piece... Um, I mentioned bipartisan a moment ago. I mean, one thing that strikes me is very different <clears throat> now relative to, say, five years ago um, on the antitrust front is how dramatically things have shifted for the large technology companies. You know, they used to be the darlings of, of uh, what we we're doing here in the U.S., and now you have uh, folks on the con you know, conservative right uh, that are worried about um, uh, bias, let's say, uh, in terms of uh, bias search results. Uh, you, you have folks on the progressive left that, that are very worried about uh, some of the uh, antitrust issues, perhaps. Um, and so I think, I think it's a tough environment for a tech firm right now, probably a great environment to be a lobbyist, right? That's me. That, that was meant to be a joke. <laughs> okay. um, but I can say more about the antitrust in a minute and maybe tie it to the data portability, but let me just touch on the AI regulation. So, um, yeah, so, so, uh, so uh, there are a bunch of aspects to this. Uh, so, so first of all, no, I don't think, and, and we, I think we described this in the paper, no, I, I don't think there, that we want a specific agency whose entire job is the regulation of AI. You know, right now the system that we have in Washington, D.C. is uh, we already have agencies that are very specifically focused on their different areas. So, for example, we have National Highway Traffic Safety Agency, 
NHTSA uh, that, that's focused on roads. We have SEC that's focused on uh, trading and, and, and the stock market and the like. Um, and, and there's just a lot of deep expertise there that we want to remain there. And ideally what, we'd, what you'd have are some, some additional people in those agencies that are really um, well-educated about AI and what it is that AI can do. We, we don't want to sort of somehow try to have all of the issues related to AI as it pertains to public markets or as it pertains to roads somehow be siloed in their own agency. That, that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. But you could imagine sort of a maybe like a sub-agency or like a subgroup within each of those existing agencies that's focused on AI. Um, as a side note, in Congress, we certainly want more uh, tech expertise, and one way to do that is via something called the Office of Technology Assessment. This was something that we had back, um, you know, 70s, 80s, into the mid-90s that uh, we then got rid of. Uh, I, I think something like that makes a lot of sense and, and would be relatively cheap to bring back in and would be a way to keep, um, a way to keep uh, members of Congress educated about, about technology. Um, in terms of, you know, so, so I don't think we want an AI-specific Regulator or an AI-specific agency, but we, you know, we do want this. We, we do want more expertise in the existing agencies, and you could also imagine maybe a, at a minimum, sort of a working group. It might start at the um, at the White House that's focused on some of the issues around bias in AI. I think something like that would be really important to look at. Questions uh, from around the table. Yes, I would just love to hear your thoughts on how organizations are positioning themselves as AI leaders or experts or leveraging that technology within their, within their world. It doesn't have to be in the healthcare space, but it just seems like there's a lot of hype out there. Yeah. Um, so I completely agree with um, there's a lot of hype out there. there. There's no question about that. There, there, there's a lot of hype out there. Um, let me just like step back for a minute. So when you mentioned healthcare, um, earlier, Chris, when you were um, <clears throat> asking about productivity gains, and where we might see them, <clears throat> one, one way, sort of one exercise one could do is go through different sectors of the economy and, and try to think about where we might see a lot of gains from AI. Um, I mentioned uh, autonomous vehicles as being one. Uh, healthcare, you could imagine, being another. Um, using AI to try to identify earlier, you know, sort of at-risk individuals earlier than we currently are. That might lead to people um, uh, you know, being diagnosed quicker than they currently are. Um, that might lead to lower costs for that individual in the long run, perhaps a slightly longer life, a more productive life. You could sort of play that out. And I think healthcare is one of the areas where I would expect that we'd see uh, a lot of productivity gains coming from. Uh, education would probably be another. Where you probably would not see the productivity gains is in areas like marketing, right, where it's sort of like a zero-sum game where if you can market to an individual a little bit better than some other firm, that just increases the incentives on the part of the other firm to invest in a little bit more AI to try to market a little bit better. But at the end of the day, you're still just going to sell one product. You're just fighting each other, you know, to, to see who can do it more efficiently. Um, so so that, that was sort of the response on, on healthcare. In terms of the hype piece, um, I'll give you an example, again, from the autonomous vehicle sector. So Elon Musk loves to talk about, you, you brought up Elon Musk earlier, yeah. loves to talk about how there'll be, you know, fleets of AI-enabled autonomous taxis within a year. Right, um, so that, that's one end of the spectrum. That, that's the hype end of the spectrum. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is someone who knows a ton about autonomous vehicles. It's an individual named Chris Ermson. So this is a former Carnegie Mellon University professor. He uh, won some of the early DARPA self-driving car challenges, uh, you know, in the deserts, I believe, of Nevada, uh, and was um, probably the one of the first 
employees at Google X focused on self-driving cars, and he ran the what, what became Waymo. He sort of ran that unit for a long time before leaving to found his own startup. Okay, so he knows a lot about this space. Uh, he's also very bullish about it, and he thinks that there, there will be a lot to happen here, which is why he's running his own startup. And his best guess as to when half of the vehicles out on the road will be autonomous is 30 to 50 years from now, right? So this is someone who knows this stuff really well, and it's like the opposite end of the, of the hype. So yes, there's a lot of hype out there. Um, and, and I guess my suggestion there would be to think about people that really know what they're talking about and uh, tr- try to get their sense on what AI is doing and what it holds for the future. Which leads perfectly to uh, the close, um, which is yet another Elon Musk reference. Um, in your paper, uh, Musk said that uh, you quote him as saying, AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization. Um, he might be prone to a little bit of hype. So I guess the, is the takeaway, we don't have to worry about uh, human civilization uh, from AI just yet. Chris, we don't have to worry about human civilization being negatively impacted by AI. We're, we're going to be around for many, 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 many centuries. Okay. Well, our next conversation will be on climate change. Okay. okay yeah, there we go. There we go. Thanks. Rob, thank you. Thank you for your Thanks. time.